History Lecture 118. This is Rabbi Blyweiss. Uh, we, we talked about this, the post-Shoah uh, re-establishment of the Torah centers in Eretz Yisrael. We talked about the building yeshivas in America, uh, the two center, the demographic centers of the Jewish people. Uh, of course, we'll talk about other areas, France and England and South Africa and Australia and um, the, other, the other centers where talk about Russian Jews as well, but these are, the, these are the centers, and therefore they're also emerging as Torah centers. I, the only one figure I didn't have time, and I can't give him short shrift, he's too, uh, um, too much of, a, of an important figure to, to, to do briefly, so we'll, we'll talk about now uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky before we come back to Eretz Yisrael and talk a little bit about the early years, early years of the state, of the Medina. Um, uh, Rav Yaakov's uh, dates 1891 to 1986, he had a Yomim. Uh, 95 years, 95 very, very important years. He was a Talmud, like so many who we've met, of the altar of Slobodka. And I point that out again to you, how what an immense impact that Slobodka Yeshiva uh, would have with its many disciples. And the um, they use that as a raya of the superiority sometimes of the of the Shita of Slobodka versus Navardic. I don't know if that's necessarily a raya, maybe it's too superficial, but the fact that the altar emphasized the building up of the person and that that approach seemed to produce so many gedolim, so many impactful individuals, maybe there's something to that. In any case, uh, he was connected. He's a cousin of Rav Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman, who we met, was the, uh, is the founder of Ner Yisrael Yeshiva in Baltimore. Um, famous story about him. When he was Rav back in the old country in a Polish town, uh, a Jew once, uh, you know the story? A Jew once went to the post office and got extra change from the non-Jewish postal clerk. You know, who knows the story? I've said the story, yeah. Yeah, so he, he, he once got uh, too much money and he, and he asked, uh, you know, he asked Kamenetsky, what, uh, you know, what do I do with the change? And, and, and he told him, he said, give it back. Uh, you got more than what you purchased, you return it immediately. Um, so now, several weeks later, Rav Kamenetsky went to the post office and the clerk somehow identified him. He knew that this was the Rav of the town and he didn't believe it. It was too good to be true and he'd never seen such a thing before. He was not a Jewish clerk. And so he deliberately tested Rav Yaakov. And to see his reaction, he gave him too much change and immediately, right afterwards, Rav Yaakov immediately returned uh, the money. So the true story, years later, the um, same clerk um, when the Nazis come and do the roundup, said these this people are special. They, they don't deserve to be rounded up. And, uh, and, and he hid many Jews and saved many lives. The um, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky himself got out. He moved to the United States in 1937, uh, just in time. He was, among other things, he was the Rosh Hashiva of Torah Vidas. He was a posek in America. He was also known because of his figure, his personality. He, you've seen many pictures of him, maybe. He has this beautiful, gentle smile. He was somebody who was known. People talked about him after he died. The non-Jews said, he always greeted me. He was so warm. What a, what a... No, 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 nothing to do. I know the last names are easy. One is um, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. The other one is, like, is Kanievsky. And both Gedolim, both around the same uh, period, and, and, and both friends, but no, different... Totally different people. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky was in America. I mean, after 1937, at least, uh, for, the, for the next half a century, he would he would lead, he'd be one of the gedolim in America. Um, 
uh, just to give you a sense of his, his, his uh, expansive neshama, he was once with some students waiting, like many people have to do in their lives, waiting in a doctor's waiting room for whatever, whatever ailed him. And there was a, an, a Jewish boy, a simulated Jewish boy, who was nearby. And um, suddenly, Yaakov, I mean, he was older at this point, um, started to play ball with the boy. And they just couldn't, the students couldn't believe it because it's not the kind of thing you expect to see from your Rebbe. And afterwards, they asked him, is, is that, that's not really, you know, it's not exactly befitting your faith, your, 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 um, your, your dignity. Rebbe, why, why would you do this? He, and uh, I'll quote him. He said, I, I just wanted that this boy, who doesn't come from a from background, evidently, that his picture of a from Jew should remain one of a pleasant person. If you've done that, you've done a big thing in life. If they should see us as pleasant people, that's, that's what we call the Kiddush Hashem. Um, in another story, uh, he was on an airplane. Tell, you know this story? Very famous story about Yaakov. Uh, he was on an airplane, and he was sitting, happened to be sitting next to the head of the Histadrut. The Histadrut is like the equivalent of the head of the labor union, uh, all of the labor union in Israel, secular Israeli. And they were flying uh, to America to, on a flight to New York from, from, from Tel Aviv. And um, as they were there, the, the Yeruchim Mashal started to bombard him with all kinds of questions about everything. Hashkafa, halacha, whatever. Uh, Rav Yaakov was very patient. And during the entire time that they were sitting in the airplane, um, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, who's now considered one of the Gedolim of America, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky was constantly coming in and visiting and saying, uh, Tati, do you need anything? Can I get you anything? Have something to drink? Just attending to his father's needs, doing basic kibbutz the aim that would not be remarkable if they were all religious Jews around. And um, he, the Mashal, Mashal, Mashal was, you know, not satisfied with any of the answers that Rav Yaakov had to any of his kachas. He said, he said, but tell me something. I haven't, nothing you've said today has convinced me. But the only thing I can't figure out is what do you guys do in Chinuch Banim? How do you educate your kids? Look at your son coming in. He's a grown man and he, he's treating you not as, in, as no children of mine would ever treat me uh, with, with utter reverence. And Rav Yaakov's response was as follows. He says, it's very simple. You believe and you teach your children that you evolved from monkeys. And that, therefore, people, humanity, is advancing. We're moving on to something bigger and better. Naturally, then, the newer the generation, the more they have scorn for the old monkeys, is, which is how they perceive the older age, oh, 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 the, the, their, their elders. For Am Yisrael, for us, we were born in Harsina. So our yearning is to reach what we call Maisa Avusenu. And so um, you know, th- that that's that's our uh, that's our uh, that's our ideal. So they want to get back as close as they can to Harsina. There's reverence for the elders. I think um, was it Uri Zohar was one of the famous uh, cultural figures in Israel who became a Balshuva. I think it was Uri Zohar. was a Rav now. Um, said that in his youth, in his youth, um, every, when he was a star movie star, his, his, um, the, the, the way he saw things is all the youth were, were on stage performing and everybody in society, including the old people, idolized the youth. He said in Tyra it's exactly the opposite. It's the, it's the elders who are standing in the center stage and everybody else gathering around them, revering them. Now, simple logic would dictate that. 
would say that that's what we would do. Who's a kid? Youth is wasted on the, on the young. They don't know what they're doing. They're idiots half the time. Uh, the celebrity culture that lionizes people just because they're beautiful and they know how to hit a, a tennis ball, that's, that's, that's a role model. Whereas the people who have been around the block, who've learned a thing or two, especially through years of trial and error, because all of us fail, but become wise and elderly and, and experienced and seasoned human beings, they're the ones worthy of reverence. Yeah. Um, the first decade of uh, the new state would be uh, interesting. What I'm doing now, to kind of, I'm trying to paint a collage here, a mosaic um, of different events that would shape, would mark the first decade um, and give a sense of the good, bad, and the ugly, uh, the, the various problems in, the, in, in, in starting a new state, especially in the way that it was begun. Um, one of the issues, I'm not going to go into this in great depth, uh, it speaks for itself, but one of the things constantly in the background ever since the state was born was that there was no peace. There were, and throughout the 1950s, probably one of the major uh, scourges of the time were the what were called the Fiyadin, were mostly people, local Palestinians, and sometimes from abroad, from across the border, from Jordan and elsewhere, um, who were attacking, and we would call it the equivalent of terrorist attacks. Um, they often came in from Egypt-occupied Gaza, so a major place of incursion. Israel sometimes counterattacked, but the general period, remember who's in charge now, the Haganah has now become the IDF. Remember the former policy of the Haganah, the reason why the Etz and the Lechi had broken away, because of the policy of Havlaga, of restraints, and that would still characterize the state mainly when it came to military things. We don't want to get the world, we're just beginning at this statehood thing, and we don't want to get the world antagonistic to us, so we're not going to do much, which would serve to encourage the terrorists. There were very, very few, uh, very few deterrents for the terrorism, and the gains were great. The, the uh, it's, a, it's a kind, even though it's not called the war of attrition, but attrition just means you break away, you chip away at the psychological well-being of your enemy to the point that they cave in. Wait, when, when does that change? Like when is, when does? Um, 2016. The Shiaf will be coming. No. The, uh, the policy of Havlagah. That's true. The policy of Havlagah. Havlagah? Yeah. It waxes and wanes, but is mostly characteristic of this of the new state. You Meaning know, the like general the position of Havlagah is more dominant and characteristic of the entire history of the state of Israel than not. Occasionally they'll get belligerent. The, Remember, in the early years of the state, up until 1977, the ruling power party without competition was the, the, the labor, the Abu Dhabi, the Maharaf, as it would be called, it went through different names as, it, as the parties changed their names for political expedient reasons. Um, but that was what they stood for, was we want to be conciliatory. We don't want to rile up the, uh, our allies in the world, not that there really are many allies in the world. There's America, and then, well, then there's... Um, uh, there's America, uh, right? But they don't. They don't want. They, they they're concerned about that. They're very self-conscious. What will the Goyim think? But dur during the Six-Day War, was it like that was a period of strike? It wasn't that. Fair enough. The, the Fair enough. I, I said that there were exceptions. No, there were exceptions. Even so, as we when we get to the Six-Day War, we'll see Havlaga restraint very much alive and well in many of the decisions, the policies, and in some ways, one would wonder there was a supernatural. 
uh, Hashem's hand seemed to be almost forcing them to do certain things that, that went against their, their, their inclination. They were inclined towards Avlagah, and in a sense they were forced, had no choice. I mean, the Six-Day War was inevitable. They didn't want to have it. They, it was a defensive war. Um, the other piece to put in your mind, and I've already described this, but let's talk about it a little bit more in depth, was uh, the 1950s, if you picture them in Eretz Israel, you cannot picture them without uh, somehow internalizing the intense ongoing poverty and therefore the hardship um, that, that accompanied, they didn't have anything. We remember this, that many of the Olim didn't know how to use electricity. They didn't know the ways of a modern Western society. Uh, and it's not that Israel was, a, was a, an established society, that they had the means, the wherewithal to, to turn around and teach people. They themselves had not yet set an infrastructure for the rudiments, for the basics of, of how, the, how, how a state would look. Um, they're certainly one of the things, and I'm going to talk about this, together with the poverty and the hardship, was um, something that characterized the Zionist enterprise from the really the get-go from the first Zionist Congresses back in Europe, in Basel, Switzerland, and elsewhere, and on, and that is an absolute, almost un unembarrassed, unashamed um, Ashkenazi bias. And the, um, an ironic and really two-faced, two because the secular stood for secular socialism, right? And socialism is egalitarian, we're all in this together. As long as you're all in, you kind of look like me and sound like me and talk, uh, talk Karl Marx like me. But the minute you start talking about people from these backwards third world countries, the Muslim world states, not so much was, was, was often what we found. The, um, they often, remember the large influx, we did this the other day when we talked about the new demographics. Yeah, suddenly lots of Jews from Muslim rule land, often penniless, who are coming to the country. Uh, and the new sec the secular establishment campaigned aggressively for them to reject their old ways, which of course included rejecting their old traditions. Uh, they, they explained to the new immigrants and even more to their receptive new kids, because remember the psychology. Picture this, you have huge families coming over from Iraq, from Morocco, from far reaches of the world, and they're coming in. Now the older generation often don't even <coughs> speak the language. I know, for example, that if you go down to, in the middle of the Negev to Yerucham, they, they took a bus. I know Yerucham was founded. It was one of the development towns in the 1950s. Anybody been to Yerucham before? It's right near the, the uh, craters, the Machtesha Gadol. Craters is a bad translation. Anyway, in Yerucham, the, they, they brought them down on a bus from the, from the boat. They got off the boat. They took a bus down to Yerucham. And the immigrants didn't speak the language, but they asked in their own language, uh, some of which are still here spoken in, your, in Yerucham till today. Some of them never learned uh, Hebrew. Um, so they asked, where are we? And they were told, Tel Aviv, because that's what people wanted to hear. Uh, well, that worked the first couple busloads, and finally a bus got to Yerucham, and they got some wisdom, they learned a little bit, and they refused to get off the bus, because they knew once they got off the bus, they were stuck in the middle of the desert, which is basically what Yerucham was. Now, Baruch Hashem, it's been built up, it's a nice place, it's increasingly nice because the, the army has moved most of its main bases to the Negev, and so that brings, when you have a big institution like the army, that brings um, money, that brings, that brings uh, uh, opportunities for people. But back then it was not so desirable. Uh, <clears throat> they, 
we're preaching to the younger generation who was very receptive. Because look at the old guard. They were seen as superstitious as back in the old country, but the youth always want to conform, always want to be accepted and loved by their peers. And they look around, much like we saw in America, they said, well, okay, what is the society? And they'll learn the master the language, and, 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 and not just the language, but the whole culture. And they were told, you will never make it here. If you keep your traditions, they're gonna hinder your integration into our new progressive socialist society. Um, parents were told you can send your kids to any school system you'd like. And there was a religious school system. Remember, there's Mamlach Dati or, or a very small Chinuch Ha'atzma'i, but that was not usually so available wherever the new immigrants were living. And, um, and they said, yeah, you could do that, but then tell us if you send your kids to the Mamlach Dati, to the religious schools, how are you planning on them getting a um, Parnassah? Because if they go to the regular state schools, and they, they've really built up the state schools. And state schools, there are all kinds of job opportunities, all kinds of potential for parnasa. Well, if you're starving, of course you want your kid to go to school to get a to get a degree to be able to go and be able to make some money. So they were, in a sense, almost brainwashed, manipulated into sending their kids away from religious schools, which effectively sent their kids away from religion. We're going to talk about the um, Shas revolution in the 1980s, but. After a generation of this, there's a huge backlash because now you're talking about group, whole groups of people, whole communities who became secular not by choice but by coercion. Talk about religious coercion. This is religious anti-religious coercion, and the kids never really stopped being religious. It's, it was that deep-seated sense of, of connectedness to Kaddish Baruch to tradition that remained externally. They looked like they were secular. But the same women who dressed like prostitutes, like you know, immodest women, wouldn't think twice when they got married about not going to the mikvah. Of course, they go to the mikvah. Her mother and her mother and her mother always went to the mikvah. That was something you kept internally, and 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 the the, the um, imuna, the deep uh, faith, was there. But they often didn't know. They didn't get instructions, so they were ameha aritz when it came to Torah knowledge, halachic. Uh, knowledge and so on, but they, you know, they they did they, 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 they tried as best they could uh, to maintain the, the, the connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And again, there's going to be a backlash, a Sephardi pride backlash in the 1980s. Um, there is just up the street in the Bukharin Shuk, the largest Balshuva yeshiva for Sephardi called the Orachayim. Anybody been there? You probably passed it. You know what I'm talking about? Big, beautiful building just up the street in the Bukharin Shuk. Um, that, that's the largest, but there are other such institutions. I know, for example, in a kolo that I was in in Mibaseret, the Meretz Kolo in Mibaseret, which is Dati Liumi, serious Dati Liumi, they actually go out and they send groups of families every year from the kolo to kind of out-of-the-way places around Eretz Yisrael um, to do kiruv, to do kiruv of, of Israelis. And generally speaking, their most, their greatest successes is where there are, are Sephardi populations. I know offhand a lot, which has a lot of Sephardi Jews, but no real, initially, it was very little religious anything in a lot, so the Meretz um, families from Miskola went down and built, they built a Hezri Yeshiva, they built a, they built a mikvah, they built the rudiments of a, of a religious life, and, and mostly, mostly Sephardi Jews sign on. Oh, that's for me. Same up in Ma'alot in the far north, if you know Ma'alot, in the middle of the, uh, the central, um, central upper Galilee, uh, and, and like that, they have you know they have places where they've done very well, and generally it's the Sephardi population who are who, who are responsive to their message. And I have to mention this too; it's all part of the same story. 
You've heard about the kidnapped Yemenite children. You know about this? Yeah, I know about this. The, the issue is unfortunately one where I don't know, even though there's been, there've been commissions, government-sponsored commissions to try to get to the bottom of what really happened, I don't think we have clarity about what happened. What I can say minimally is that is the following absolutely took place. It's just the question is, is how broad scale, how widely um, practiced it was. There were mostly Yemenites. They targeted the Yemenites. Somehow they, the Ashkenazi establishment perceived them as particularly backwards. They targeted them and, they, and uh, Yemenite women would go from the Ma'abarot, the, uh, the camps where they were living in squalor. They would give birth in the hospital. Then they'd be informed that tragically their baby died in childbirth or immediately after childbirth. And they would go home and they would go through the rites of mourning. Um, but meanwhile, the child didn't die. They were saved from those backwards people who were gonna raise the child in the, in, 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 with those antiquated religious traditions and they would be um, taken to a kibbutz instead to be raised in a good, upstanding, again, Zionist, secular, socialist uh, education so they could become part of the society and they were doing it altruistically trying to, um, trying to help the kid. And those parents wouldn't know anyway. They're going to have a thousand kids anyway, because you know those religious people having 10, 20 kids. They would they wouldn't mind. They wouldn't miss a few of their kids that will take and, and integrate into Israeli society. Now you hear the basic outline of the story, and I don't know about you, me. I think ooh, conspiracy theory. Doesn't it sound like it? Only almost certainly it probably happened. <laughs> At least some of it. The question is, is what are the numbers? Um, there was a commission called the Kahan Kedmi Commission that functioned between 1995 and 2001 um, that never really successfully, satisfactorily answered the claims. Um, some claim that hundreds of children, mostly Yemenite, were raised in secular homes, kidnapped and raised in secular homes. Um, we know that they've matched DNA. I mean, there have been a few instances where mothers and children were, were reunited after, after a couple decades, after a couple uh, decades, I mean, several decades um, in their old age, um, tragically and sadly, and that their DNA matched and they could be identified scientifically as mother and daughter. But there aren't so many such cases. So the commission never really satisfactorily answers how much and was it really more of a conspiracy theory than not. I would just assert to you, if even one such story is right, it's shocking and reflective of a certain attitude. The, the, I'm, what I'm trying to do in all these stories is paint a background of what's going on in this state and um, the deep struggles between the religious secular world. And they're not benign. And if you think that this uh, issue is a new one, so that's naive and that's my ongoing argument that this is not, um, Yair Lapid and the Yeshatid party did not invent the tensions between the secular and the religious. These have been going on for, for, for many decades. and. Uh, there's, there's understandable tension on both sides, although obviously I'm biased towards the religious side. Um, there's, there, there was a, a self-conscious um, campaign to try to um, break apart the, uh, the institutions of religious life and ideally get those kids away from, get, get the kids into a good secular environment. Um, the state lacks food. They lack, they lack foreign currency. The Israeli currency is not worth much. So from the 1950s, they start a political policy called the austerity measures. 
which meant that they had severe rations on basic staples of life, of life like oil, sugar, margarine, and many other staples. Each family was given a very minimal quantity per week. I mean, almost ridiculously minimal. You couldn't do much with them. Um, this would extend not just to food stuff, but furniture and footwear, clothing, basic clothing, all of which was so scarce that it was rationed. And in, with, with the socialist ethos, they tried to do so um, fairly. Um, the idea, the government, you know, the, the bureaucratic planning was that every citizen could get 1,600 calories per day. Um, I don't know if you know what calories are like, 1,600 calories. Do you know that, let's say, uh, the average fast food meal of a hamburger, fries, and a Coke? Oh, no, it's more. Oh, no, no, it's, exceed, it's exceeding. I think it's in the couple thousand range. So this is, so, so yeah. I heard just the fish sandwich at McDonald's. Yeah, it's in the thousands. So each person was allotted 1,600 um, calories per day in the rations. Um, they gave a few extra calories to ch for children, for the elderly, and for pregnant women. The, I mean, what are you going to do? They were, these were austerity measures because the, there, was, there was no money in the new state. Um, now, the, the problem is, is this would all be difficult enough if you had a functional bureaucracy, but Israel didn't. They had a holdover from the inefficient British system, and as a new system, they were incredibly backwards and often corrupt, <coughs> and which not only did the British system survive, but the old Turkish system of, remember the word? Right. The Arabic word, bakshish, bribery, uh, was very much the rule of the day, and there was corruption and inefficiency, and um, it was the bureaucracy was in, was more intrusive. You know what I mean by intrusive bureaucracy? In other words, they were all over your life, kind of like what they're complaining. Uh, you know, the the um, they complain about um, the Democrats in American government, but that was nothing compared to what the Israelis were like in the 1950s. Um, what also developed was, in any such system, uh, a growing black market. Because whenever you don't have stuff, but you know the stuff exists, it's all out there, you can buy it for a price. It's all to be found, and so a black market would develop that still exists, um, which is also a holdover of the British system. The, um, and the bureaucracy could do very little to stop the black market from growing. So you have a, a system where um, breaking the law now becomes... Like that's what people do, and that that's the way the state came into being, and to some degree, it remains till today. People grew up on a system where they just knew you cannot just make it by being a law-abiding citizen. The the, the the government itself goes with the assumption that people will cheat on their taxes, will not pay, will not will will get around the various measures of the society, and that becomes that becomes part of society. You can counter and say that that's true in almost any Western society, and that's true. And I would suggest to you that it's much more in terms of just proportion in Israel. Because of the difficulty of starting the new state and again, the extreme poverty, um, impoverishment of the original state, it was, it was and remains part of the society. It's an immensely corrupt society from the top to the bottom. And, and again, that remains the case. Um, 1952, Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion signed what were called, the, I mentioned this on the bus the other day, reparation agreements with Western Germany, which the idea was to compensate the vast 
calculated to inflation billions of dollars of confiscated Jewish property and money that the Nazis, that the Germans collected during, before and during the Shoah. And the idea would be to compensate the Jewish people by giving, that, giving at least some of the money um, to the Jewish state. Uh, the idea, of course, ideally, was that there's so much money coming in, it would help offset the extreme austerity measures. And it did, eventually. So that by 1959, the most goods were no longer rationed. So there was an immediate positive effect felt by people. And if you talk, anybody know people who lived in, 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 in Israel in those first years? Because you could talk about this. I mean, they, I, mean I, I, I have friends who talk about, you know, they were so excited when they got their weekly egg. Uh, I mentioned that before because the image sticks in my mind. Yeah, an egg. Um, and by 1959, that was alleviated and mainly due to the reparation money. Um, and I mentioned on the bus, anybody remember this? We went out, we talked about this. Um, the idea that the secular state would somehow, on its own, um, without asking permission, uh, unilaterally say, we hereby accept the task of representing all of the Jewish people, and therefore we feel that we're the most deserving recipient of these reparation funds, that was greeted with mass protests, especially from the right wing, who felt that the state was not at all a voice, that they were not entitled to represent the Jewish people just because they said so. Uh, the, the money was owed to individual families. You could still, back in the 50s, trace which families had lost which sums of money and, and, and arguably have given the reparation money exactly to where, where, where it belonged and to the people that it was, who, who uh, deserved it. Um, they also, the opponents of the state who, uh, who, who accepted the money said it provided the Germans with an opportunity to, to buy some kind of kapara. It was guilt money. They said, you can't do that. They, they, they did what they did to Klal Yisrael, can't, they can't buy their way out of the problem. I mentioned Ben-Gurion, uh, Menachem Begin's advocating violent resistance. And there was indeed around the Knesset, and you can go visit, you can see the outside of the building just on King George Street above Ben Yehuda, where you can still see damage on the exterior of the building that's from the, I think, 1953 uh, violent protests that the, um, what's called Chirut, was the name of Begin's party then. Chirut eventually morphed into Likud. And it's called Beit Fruman, right? Beit very good. That's the building. Can you picture the building? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly the one. Um, Interesting halachic shaylas came up that Tzitz Eliezer of Waldenberg was asked the following shayla. He said, um, if you were a survivor, and by the way, there are reparation money, monies coming in till today. If you're a survivor and you receive this money, are you, for example, chayev in maizuk sofim? I asked at the very beginning of this year, at the beginning of the year, I gave a shayla on tzedakah. Um, do you have to give the money to tzedakah? After all, you're just receiving back money that was rightfully yours. Do you remember how he paskin? Remember the issue at all? What would you say? He said it all depends. He says, if you can reasonably claim that you were never misyayish, that when the Nazis stole all of your family's possessions, you held out and you said, I'm going to get that back one day. And if you could reasonably claim there was no yeyush, there was no giving up, there was no despairing of the money, then you can, um, then you can keep the money as rightfully yours and not have to give miser, I guess, for the second time. But he said, who could really claim that? 
how can anybody ever expect once they stole it that you'd ever see it again, let alone survive the ordeals that they went through? And he said that a person would not would have to give the money again as if receiving a new gift. There was an episode in 1954 that also paints a, paints part of the picture, and I'm going to mention some of the details. It's referred to in Hebrew as the Asik Bish, the evil affair. Uh, in which everybody involved, you know, the expression in a cesspool, nobody comes out smelling clean. Everybody involved looked bad. Uh, here are the basics of, the, of what happened. In the summer of 1954, um, Israel military intelligence had recruited a group of Jews in Egypt to plant bombs inside targets owned by Egypt, America, and Britain. The plan was, and this is a wild story, the plan was to blow up the targets and to blame the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay? Not all military plans, I mean, we can say this now with perfect hindsight, what fools, what idiots, but not all military, they, they, they obviously felt that they were doing something for the betterment of the state of Israel. Right? Okay, so not all these plans are, are well advised. Anyway, they, they hoped that they would blame the Muslim Brotherhood and gain, gain credibility, but realize this, you know, they're, they're, the bombs are not just against Egypt, a sworn enemy, but America, their only major ally in the world. And um, the whole plan was, was, uh, was, was thwarted. The Egyptians discovered what was going on. The only casualties, nothing was ever blown up. The only casualties was, were members of the group who committed suicide once they were, once they were, after being captured. They were the only ones to die. Uh, you could imagine the immense international controversy that followed, the embarrassment for Israel, and the logical solution under the circumstances. Going back to one of those expressions we used at the beginning of this class, what was the logical thing to do? No, find a good, convenient scapegoat, and they found it in the form. No, well, they couldn't deny because they were caught red-handed. They just couldn't. So instead, they blamed the defense minister, a fellow by the name of Pinchas Lavon. It's called the Lavon affair. He resigned. Yes. He resigned. He was forced to resign. He he took the brunt of the blame unfairly. It was the whole. Everybody was involved. We now know in hindsight, everybody was involved. As I said, the corruption went to the very top. Um, Israel, in its public stance, public, publicly denied their involvement in 1954 for the next 51 years, many years, long after it was proven that everybody was involved from Ben-Gurion on down, and Shari and everybody, they were all, they were all had, a, had, a, had a piece in it. They denied it publicly for 51 years. Um, only in 2005, were finally the surviving agents who went through uh, an ordeal, uh, you know, and they were isolated and vilified, and everybody said how traitors to the Israeli government. How could you do this? How could this Ben Gurion sent me? So they were finally honored in 2005. Too little, too late. Uh, there's a place in Har Herzl you can go right near uh, the important place where um, some of the some of the, the the guys who committed suicide and some of the others uh, are buried. You can visit them today. Um, Oh, the Egyptian uh, secret intelligence. They, 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 they discovered it. But um, the, the whole affair, as I said, made, um, made Israel look bad in everybody's eyes. They lost significant cre credibility in its relations with the United States, as you could understand, and, and, and the UK, as you could understand. Uh, the profound corruption of the government was exposed to the public. They lost credibility in the eyes of Israelis. That was the Asik Bish. No, no, no positive end to that one. Um, 
another episode. I, I, I guess you could accuse me of dwelling on the negative, um, and that would be accurate. There was a lot of negative, and so that and that and because I guess in the general history accounts you don't hear about this because most of history is meant to promote an agenda. Um, if you learn, for example, I learned Zionist history when I was a student at Hebrew University for my junior year abroad. And the goal there is to promote Israel. It's just that's what they're doing. And so remember we said history is always what you want, the story you want to tell. So if what you want to do is that students come away with a positive feeling for the country, you're not going to tell the story of Basic Beach. You're not going to tell any of these stories because you want people to feel warm fuzzies. Um, so I guess in my, in my including these stories, I'm giving you the other side of the story. I, to be fair, there was positive. And I mentioned a little bit, I mean, the fact that there was this immense idealism that we're building our own country, that people were still swept up with the messianic fervor, the Jews couldn't believe that they were sovereign in the land, they were good, they were good people and good acts, there were people living tire and doing mitzvos. Um, but then, hey, 1955, there was a scandal, this is shocking, uh, there was an affair where uh, archaeologists went up to the site of the Rambam's tomb in Tiveria, have I told you this? I did mention this one? When we visited maybe, we went to Tiveria, I mentioned this? We didn't go to Rambam's camera, so maybe I mentioned the story. Alright, so let me tell you the story. The idea was, what archaeologists like to do is they love to dig the past to discover the future. That's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're uh, all in the name of progress, and, and sometimes it's useful what they're doing. It's not in vain, in vain exactly. They have their own agenda, but there's no um, weight given towards Jewish tradition, towards Kavod mace in this instance, uh, honoring the dead. And um, they said that the grave, the way they justified it in the, in the press, was that they were purifying the Rambam's grave. See, all over the uh, through the years, many many non-Jews, many non-Jewish graves were brought in and put by the Rambam, and they wanted to get rid of them to make a nicer place for the Rambam was the claim, and to uh, certainly excavate because of the many layers of, of civilization of, of history in in one of the four holy cities. Um, protests broke out. Um, some of the, many of the Gadolim were involved. The Briskarov was had a major stake in this. Um, there, many of the protesters we would associate with with the Naturi Karta, but with all the problems of the Naturi Karta, I, I should say, and this is maybe my own editorial, this was a proud moment in their efforts. Um, see, because all Jews, the Briskarov said this. He said, for any thinking, caring Jew. It's a mitzvah for us to take care of the living and it's a mitzvah for us to care, take care of the dead. So if somebody is doing a chil Hashem, if somebody is going and damaging uh, and desecrating the graves of holy people, and you have to realize it's a very, it's not just any holy people. They're mamash kibri tzaddikim. I'll, I'll, I'll throw out some of the names of people that we have in tradition are buried there. Um, if they're desecrating, that should be all the Jewish people's um, issue, certainly religious Jews. But as religious Jews, most of us are passive. And we hear about such thing and our, such things, and our general reaction is, "What a shame! Terrible stuff! What's going on over there?" Um, the Naturei Karta, under the leadership of the um, the, the Talmud Chacham and the very radical, you should read about him a little bit too, of Amram Loy, uh, went up and protested. Um, 
And their protests initially were met with indifference. The government had their plan, the government were in control, they had the power, and they could care less about a bunch of religious Jews protesting in the streets. And this went on for a couple weeks. Oh, I know where I told you the story. I'll tell you where I told you the story. Didn't it come up by when we stood by the camera of Shlomo Lawrence? Maybe not, because I know the story from Shlomo's office. He was a religious member of the Knesset. He was the one who went in and he, he, he um, visited the Brisker Rav during this period. And he went into, he was standing in his bedroom and he saw the pillow of the Brisker Rav was, was wet. And he was concerned about the old, he was, old, he was older and, 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 and had disease, had problems, had sicknesses. And um, he thought maybe there was a leak in the roof. And if he checked the whole roof, there was no leak. Until he realized why was his pillow wet? His pillow wet was, was from tears. Why were there tears? I don't know. Who's buried in Tiberia? Do you know? Well, Ramchal maybe. That's up the hill when we stood by Ramchal and Rabbi Kiva. But down around the Rambam? That's further south. That was not designated. Right around the Rambam, according to the Arizal, according to the Chaim Vital, uh, Rabbi Yochanan, maybe it's Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zaka, maybe Rabbi Yochanan uh, Bar Nachka, uh, Rabbi Amni, Rabbi Asi, Presumably, he's not identified there, but Reish Lokish must be there, Rabbi Lazar Ben Das. Uh, earlier tonight, right there, the Shlach Kadosh's cavern was damaged. I mean, you're talking about Gedolei Olam, some of the greatest icons of all the Jewish people. Um, and finally, after two weeks, they prevailed, the, the protesters prevailed. Um, there was a religious minister of affairs, Datsilio Mihello, um, who presided and, and, and he gave his signature on it for the archaeologists in the name of progress. For him, the academic uh, pursuits were more important than, um, than the dignity of the Gedolim, uh, than the, 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 these Hebrew tzaddikim. And um, his name was Pinchas. Mm -hmm. One of the figures in, in early Israel government. Uh, he was involved with that, and it's a Shanda that he was. Uh, hard to justify that. In the um, in the end, they, they, they let the Hebrew Kedisha come in. They gathered many of the bones all over Tiberia. It's one of the reasons that until today, Tiberia is a problematic place for Kohanim to go in. Most of the central city of Tiberia is off limits for Kohanim. And um, they would rebury the remains, whatever they found, in these group caves, graves. Have you been up to, 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 to the, that, that weird thing above the Rambam's kever? There's a weird red structure that was built as compensation from the government, maybe out of embarrassment for what they did. And then they built these kever, kivre achim, these, these group graves where a bunch of gedolim are labeled there, even though the original graves are not intact. And kachazeh, that's what, I mean, you read about that, you read about, you read the Gemara, Gemara tells us, for example, that a couple of the Amoraim are buried fully clothed so that they're prepared to come back to Trias Amesim. And the Rambam brings the Masorah that by Trias Amesim it's going to start in Tiveria. And, uh, and then you think about the desecration, the fact that they're not buried in their clothes anymore, that, they're, that, they're, that, they're, that they're, their, their, their remains were disheveled. This story happened a year later in Beit Sha'arim. Did I take you to Beit Sha'arim this year? Rebbe's house? And there, the problem is the protesters had no place to stay. There was no place for the protesters to stay, and so they couldn't protest adequately, and, and the archaeologists got away with it. They uncovered what probably were the remains of Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi himself, Rebbe, Rebbe ha, Rebbeinu HaKadosh, and they threw them in the garbage. Probably. They probably took up Rebbe's remains and threw them in the garbage together with his wife and his children and many other Gedolim in Beit Sharim. And there again, the protests were not effective. 
Um, after this event, an organization called the Astra Kadisha was founded to pr protest future desecrations. It's been an ongoing issue until the modern day. Unfortunately, it has fallen into the hands of the more radicalized Anatoly uh, Karta, who do resort to violence and other means that the Gedolim don't endorse. Uh, they, uh, they stand alone. Um, but the, see, what's problematic then is we say, oh, those crazy Anatoly Karta, th what they're doing is usur, and we can't endorse what they're doing. But then the mainstream Torah world does very little to then fight the fight that the Torah cards are fighting. We should all be, as the Bristol said, up in arms, not literally, but metaphorically, over the desecration of graves. So when you hear, for example, often you'll hear they're building a new road that runs through a Jewish cemetery and there'll be a protest, it's an issue. It's part of the ongoing struggle between the secular, it's part of the story that I'm telling you. Um, on political military fronts, in, 19, in the 1950s, there's one major political uh, military campaign called the the Sinai campaign or the Suez the Suez campaign. Uh, what had happened in 1950 is that Egypt, an act of belligerence, a, a, war, a wartime act, even though there was no official war between is, is Egypt and Israel, closed the Suez Canal to Israel. I don't know if you know what that means on the map, but if you can't get to the Suez Canal, you can't ship most things by way of the Mediterranean. One of the major arteries of import and export for Israel uh, is now closed, at least down to a lot. Down, uh, it, it's, that, that, that's a significant act. What happened after that is there were armed clashes all along the Egyptian-Israeli border. And finally, I mean, this has been simmering for six years, in 1956, Israel actually made really un an unlikely alliance, you know with whom? Arguably, if you know anything about Israel's um, alliances over the years, they allied of all, with all people, of all people, with the British, who are not their friends, and the French. The British and the French, neither friends of uh, the state, more or less today, um, secret alliance to regain control over the Suez Canal. And in this operation that was un... Uh, Americans were shocked and dismayed. They were unhappy with Israel. Uh, they overran the Sinai Peninsula, Remember, the Sinai Peninsula is very much in Egypt. The, the borders of the Armistice Agreements of 49, Israel, you remember, is a sliver. They don't, have, they don't have the West Bank, they don't have the land, they don't have the Gaza Strip, and certainly not the Sinai Peninsula. So Israel, in this one campaign, Ariel Sharon was involved, um, overran the Sinai Peninsula. In the end, you, after immense UN pressure, they withdrew. And they withdrew in exchange for the get, uh, making sure that Egypt guaranteed Israel shipping rights at the Red Sea and at the uh, Suez Canal. So there were, it's mixed whether they were really successful. They were successful in their immediate goals, but the long-term residual damage was that um, a lot of Israel's allies were annoyed with Israel, didn't like Israel as a result of the Sinai campaign. 1959, there's a new organization established called Fatah. The young leader is a fellow by the name of Yasser Arafat. I was shocked that people in this class, when I mentioned his name earlier, some people didn't know who he was. Okay, the ignorance of our generation is uh, knows no bounds. Anyway, Yasser Arafat is, the, is originally established as Fatah in 1959 as a new mouthpiece of this, um, of this people that's increasingly identified as the Palestinian people. 
uh, when I say organized, that's uh, I should use the word lightly, not clear. You know, what does that what does that mean that you organize the Fatah? But uh, we're going to hear a lot from it. We, in, the, in the early years, Fatah is not a major voice, uh, but you're going to hear it increasingly. It's going to emerge and will become the dominant voice after 1967. Um, okay. The next episode, totally different, uh, is about a fellow by the name of Yossela Schumacher. Do you know about it? Do you know what I'm referring to? Eiffel Yossi? Eiffel Yossela? Still doesn't mean anything? Anybody, if you were in Israel during this period, it would be one of the headliners. And I'm giving you headlines intentionally to paint the picture. So what's the story? Uh, Yasala Schumacher was born in Russia and came as a young boy with his parents on Aliyah from Russia in the 1950s. Now, the family came originally from religious origins, but the parents were not. Think about Russia in the 1950s. It wasn't much of a chance for the parents to be religious. Um, finances became difficult in Israel, and they entrusted Yasala to one of the grandparents who were from. And the from grandparents cared for him. And then the father, with his financial difficulties, realized he could not stay in Israel and had to return to Russia. A uh, pretty common story. A lot of people who immigrate, not just from America, from all over the world, try to make it in Israel and don't doesn't work out. So he wanted to go back and he wanted to take his son away. The grandparents, as religious people, realized that if the father took the son away, that that would be the end of his religious life. And they were raising him. They had already raised him for, for a period as, as a religious boy. And so they were pained by that. And they turned to an organization called the Eidah Haredis, in 1960, and um, the Eidah Haredis had certain connections, and they took this boy who was seven years old, and they initially hid him with a family in Bnei Brak. Uh, it became a national cause, celebre. They, uh, there's a court order that insisted on his return, but they didn't locate him. They didn't know which family. They knew he was somewhere in the religious community. They didn't know where exactly. They didn't know which family. Um, meanwhile, realizing that this was going to be uh, an emergency situation, um, a, group of, a small group of people disguised Yasla as a girl and placed him in the care of a French woman who had recently converted. So he, nobody suspected, you know, this French woman speaking French, they didn't think that she was, uh, uh, you know, she was t walking with a girl. Nobody suspected that this was little Yasala himself, who became, again, a national cause. Uh, she was an interesting figure by the name of Ruth Ben David. She actually eventually married Rav Amram Bloy from the Naturi Karta. The Naturi Karta um, makes a big impact. Small group, tiny group, fringe, eventually disowned by all Gedolim. But a uh, loud voice, especially in these early years, um, denounced by many of their activities. This is, you're going to hear this one's denounced by the Satma Rebbe himself. Anyway, Ruth Ben David, uh, with this little boy dressed as a little girl, flew with him uh, to, to her native France, where she hid him. And meanwhile, in Israel already, and you can imagine how this is like stoking the flame of the religious conflict that exists, the secular up in arms, bring Yasala back to his father. They kidnapped him, and people were looking all over, all over Israel, combing the land. Meanwhile, this boy is in France under the care of, uh, of, this, of this convert, Ruth Ben David. The grandparents had been arrested. The, they finally found the family in Bnei Brak. They were arrested, but to no avail. 
Eventually, Schumacher, the boy, spent two years in France and Switzerland, and then was transferred to a family. Ruth Ben David smuggled him to Williamsburg in 1962. I mean, it's such a particular story, but it, when it schlepped on and became such an international, now it's international news, and it became such a headliner that it was a terrible chilulashem. And again, it stoked the conflict between the religious and the secular, as if there wasn't enough reason for, the, for them to hate each other. Um, now he's in Williamsburg in New York, and he's staying with the Satmar family. And finally, the Mossad, Israel's secret service, increased their efforts to search for him. And eventually, a few months after he'd been in Williamsburg, they caught Ben David, and they interrogate her. Um, and then a few months later, they locate the boy. Now, the Satmar Rebbe never approved of the entire kidnapping, even though it was associated with Satmar, but he said, if they asked me, uh, I would never have recommended this. And a few months earlier, he predicted that the Mossad would capture the boy, and he, he predicted everything was going to happen. It's good to ask you condoling before taking unilateral um, steps, but they didn't do this to people involved in the kidnapping of Yosela. Um, in the end, the, he was captured, he was brought to his secular mother, uh, the controversy would, people still till today, people alive then, talk about Eifo Yosela as a byword, as a catchphrase. Um, certainly the secular Israelis hated all religious Jews because of the act of a few religious Jews as a result of this. Um, the, the religious world saw this as also part of the secular conspiracy to brainwash our children to make them secular. Um, Religious extremism was a, was a catchphrase that, that was came out of this. Today, I mean, if you want to, I guess in movies today they say, you know, like when you have like a movie, you have like this whole thing, and then you want to know, like, where are they today? Kind of thing. So today, uh, Yasula is a secular kibbutznik. So that's the end of that story. Um, the final story I want to tell you today, if I'll have time, if I don't have time, I'm, I'll, I'll finish it tomorrow. You know? I don't want to do that. So I'm going to stop for a change. Since I usually go over time, I'm going to go under time, and we'll talk about the trial of Adolf Eichmann uh, tomorrow. Yeah, it's a biggie. So that we continue.